Keeping Health in Mind, um, Premier, Lifeline, all number of different charities and organisations here. And, and, and I want to just thank you for being in this room. Because every time we gather together as a group like this, you know, I sense that God is doing something amongst us. And actually, you know, he transformed the world through these 12 disciples. And there's 500 of us here. And I think that he's going to do something powerful in our communities and across uh, this nation through uh, this piece of work and through the celebration of life uh, that we're joined together in. It's World Mental Health Day today, and that's incredible to think it's not just us gathering here, but there are conferences going on in Saddleback in America and in Korea and all around Europe at the moment with people who are sharing similar stories of faith and experience of mental and emotional distress. So whether you're a psychiatric service professional, a service user, a counsellor, a sufferer, a church leader, or just a person with an interest in mental health, I want to say that you are so welcome here. Not just on my behalf, but on behalf of everyone in this room. Because you being here is significant. It's significant. Your story is significant. Your experience is significant. But most importantly, you are significant to God. He created you in his image. He loves you. You are precious. As someone who suffers from an anxiety disorder, I always want to commend any of you here who are feeling particularly anxious at the moment, and there will be many of you. Uh, it's okay to feel uncomfortable in crowds. And um, I want to say to you personally, well done for just getting to this point, and it's totally okay to go out on the grass at any point during my talk. I won't be offended. But I'd like to encourage you to kind of sit with the discomfort and know that there are other people who feel uncomfortable too. And that's totally okay. And there'll be people feeling uncomfortable at different parts of today and for whom being in big crowds like this isn't their normal experience or maybe what they would like. But God's going to do something in this. He's going to do something amongst us. And, and you're brilliant just as you are. So don't feel that anything you hear today makes you need to do more than you're already doing or be more than you're already being. God just loves you. And he's going to use you in whatever circumstances you find yourself we want to celebrate your life today and what God's doing in your life and see, I guess, some restoration of dignity to us all to say that we're not here because we've got mental health problems per se. We are not here because we've got something to offer to people with mental health problems per se. We are here in God's house because we are God's people. We are God's children. I guess I'm a bit tired of us all getting tied up with an identity that just works out of our mental health experience. I was touched this morning that a friend of mine, Pete Gregg, who runs a, a movement called 24-7 Prayer, had written a prayer for mental health and for World Mental Health Day. So I thought we'd pray it uh, as we start. So would you like to pray? Let's pray. I've only got it on my phone because I just literally got it a few minutes ago. I hope it's good because I haven't really read it through properly. <clears throat> Let's pray. We pray today, Jesus, that you will speak peace to the storms. Still heal, still welcome, still dignify from the margins of the heart. We pray today, Spirit, that you will integrate and advocate, displace fear with love, let truth banish lies. Let hope break through. Counsel counsellors, pastors, psychiatrists and friends. Holy Trinity, 
Breathe peace to reconcile body, heart, and mind. Embrace those who are ostracized. And may the love of the Father, the grace of the Spirit, and the mind of Christ prevail in our world. Amen. In this first session, a bit later on, I'm going to be talking about how to stay well in leadership, practical approaches to wellness in leadership where mental health is concerned. But in this session, I wanted to introduce a few ideas around your mental health and how you can help others. And a question that I'm often asked by Christian leaders particularly is, do I have to be fixed to fix others? Some work with quite a lot of curates. Curates come out of the box. It's a bit like Christmas when the curates appear. You know, they go to St. Paul's Cathedral here in London and they get, a, they get a fancy outfit. It looks like The Matrix, if you remember that film. They get the black undergarment and then they get the white overgarment, which is stain-free at that point, and they spill communion wine over it on, in the years following. So it kind of, they get more and more brown. Uh, but, um, and they get a fancy stole, which is normally white and gold for that first, the first time you're ordained to deacon in the Church of England. So they kind of almost pop out of the box and they're there, ready to help you with all of your problems. Um, and you know, what they quickly realize is actually there's this incredible projection on them and also from within them that they have to be this perfect person who's going to go around like this spiritual superhero, you know, bandaging wounds and sorting everyone else out and not having any problems of their own. You keep have to point them back to the New Testament and reintroduce them to the 12 disciples to show them that there were other people who jumped out of the box 2,000 years ago, but they had some quite complex problems, most of which have been written down and talked about for 2,000 years. So um, it's good to be reminded of that. At one point in my life, I was one of these shiny curates who popped out of the box trying to fix everyone. And we have this deep inner vulnerability. Do I have to be fixed to fix others? So let's take a moment to think about the question... What do you hear? Do I have to be fixed to fix others? Can you hear the anxiety? Do I have to be fixed to fix others? Can you hear the, the questioning? Do, do I have to be fixed if I, I want to help others to you know, fix others? Can you hear the question, can you, can you fix others? I want to divide this question into three parts. Firstly, the authority question. If you haven't experienced complete healing, have you got the authority to speak healing to others? The second question I want to ask is the integrity question. If I speak about recovery, will people assume that I've recovered? And if so, am I being disingenuous? And thirdly, I want to ask the vulnerability question. If I speak about healing while still suffering, will I be exposed and potentially ridiculed? Will people find me out? These are the three questions that surround leadership and mental and emotional health. Authority, integrity, and vulnerability. Responding to them is essential to your mental health and your ability to help others effectively. But before we look at them in more detail, let's take a moment to paint a bigger picture of the prevalence of mental health issues within the caring workforce. Statistics are specifically hard to come by. But the 2009 Adult Psychiatric Morbidity Survey undertaken by the NHS and the University of Leicester concluded that 23% of adults in the UK experienced a common mental health disorder in an average year. Now, 
you know that statistic relatively well, but interestingly, the demographic prevalence was highest amongst the 45 to 55-year-olds. Just as a show of hands for those who are willing, who, who falls into that age category? So more than half here today. And slightly older than that, may I be so bold? Probably close to a quarter more. Now the Australian Career Service suggests that, the English don't have stats like this, but the Australian Career Service suggested that 46 years was the average age of a counselling professional in Australia. And I certainly know that the average age of school counsellors in the UK is 44 and a half years. So we're probably very similar overall with 46 years being the average age of someone in the counselling profession in the UK. So what's the point of these statistics and this kind of correlation? Well, it's to say that professionally, at least, the very time that you're most likely to be helping others with their mental health, you're also most likely to be struggling with issues of mental ill health yourself. It's interesting, isn't it? The time in your life when you're most likely to be helping others with their mental health, you're also most likely to be struggling with your own mental health. And what we need to do is acknowledge here that we like that myth, the myth that we all like to hold on to. You know the one. You'll grow out of it. You know that myth? Oh, you'll grow out of it. When you get older you won't have any more mental health problems. Mental health problems are just for young people. Have you not heard the storm about child and adolescent mental health? You know, have you not heard the statistics about increasing prevalence of self-harm amongst girls in the UK? Have you not heard about trouble with psychotic illness and skunk cannabis amongst older teens? Yeah, you've heard all those stories. And those stories are important and significant, but can they, they can lead you to think that mental health problems are the preserve of young people. This year, this day, is particularly focused on the issues around dementia and mental health in later life. But we all here need to acknowledge that the grow out of it myth is not one we really should be supporting or accommodating. Another important thing to consider in the light of these statistics is the greater prevalence of mental health issues amongst those in caring professions rather than those in non-caring professions. Now, statistics, again, are missing here, but let's take doctors as an example group. In the BMA's 2007 report, Mental Health Matters, they revealed that 33% of doctors had mental health problems, and that's a clear 10% more than the national average. 10% more. That said, an independent inquiry into a tragic incidence of poor care of a psychiatrist struggling with psychosis found that there was, quote, widespread stigma against mental illness in the NHS. Now, over the previous 10 years of work in, with Mind and Soul, we have seen that professionals who have not been personally affected by mental health issues are by far and away the exception to the rule. That means that the majority of us in this room, probably the vast majority, have either been very personally impacted by mental health problems or someone very close to us have been impacted by mental health problems. I'm not going to ask you uh, for group disclosure here, but let's just assume in the room that everyone's here because they either have a personal story of mental ill health or they have been involved in caring in some way because someone dear to them or near to them uh, has 
an emotional health issue. Okay, let's jump back to the three questions I asked initially. The authority question. If I haven't experienced complete healing, have I got the authority to speak on healing to others? As I said, the curates say, can I fix someone if I'm not fully fixed? And in some of these settings, people who have got seriously enduring mental health problems will say, I'd love to help others, but I've got problems myself. Can I have the authority to help anyone if I don't know full and complete healing myself? And I think it's really important that we think very carefully about the complete healing narrative in mental health. Now, I'm a charismatic evangelical church leader, probably in one of the best-known churches in the UK, if not the world, Holy Trinity Brompton, just down the road. And we talk a lot about healing. But I want to say here we need to be very careful about the healing narrative that we propose. We want to make sure that the healing narrative that we support is one that includes everyone, whether or not they have seen full and complete healing in this lifetime. I believe in a God who heals. I don't believe in a God who rejects. God does not reject his children because they go on suffering with illness in the body or in the mind. I think it's important that we acknowledge that actually healing and wholeness look like more than having lost sight of a diagnosis. Those of us with long-term issues know full well that these things can really wax and wane. It's far better to build resilience and well-being than spend a lifetime on a quest for a repealed diagnosis from your doctor. And I want to encourage you all not to think about hardline wellness as in, here is my previous certificate of illness and here is my new certificate of wellness but to think instead about the wellness that's being built into you by God right now, even though that might still mean that you suffer with symptoms in body and mind. I know that we need people who are well, well all round. And interestingly, some of the people I know who struggle with mental health issues are some of the wellest people I've ever met emotionally and can offer the most to the world. As someone who struggles, as I said, with an anxiety disorder, many of my co-sufferers have inspired me as being the most courageous people I have ever met. It strikes me that it's quite easy to jump off a cliff if you don't struggle with an anxiety disorder, obviously with a parachute on, just to be clear. <laughs> Could have been awkward. Um, equally, Sometimes just getting on the tube can be a problem with someone with an anxiety disorder. And the greater level of anxiety that needs to be overcome to take small steps for one of those people is far greater than the ability to take a small step for someone into extreme sports. Let's just acknowledge the value of wellness in the church, that the wellness that God offers us is complex, not necessarily about the repealing of diagnoses. It's also important to acknowledge that in Christian terms, authority is given and not earned. That's not to say that in the scriptures there's not an appreciation of the healthy use of authority where small things are concerned. Because in the story of the talents, when someone's given authority to invest a small amount wisely, they receive a greater amount to invest wisely. But the key point is that the talents are given to all of the servants, the opportunity, the authority to invest on behalf of the master is given to everyone in the story. 
Jesus gives authority to people who haven't earned authority. Peter doesn't pop out of the fishing boat and say, hey, Jesus, have you seen my diploma in theology? I'm ready for the ministry. Judas, hey, Jesus, I've been to the school of integrity and I'm ready to work for you. I'll hold the purse. Jesus takes this group of people who have all sorts of problems, and no doubt in that 12, at least two, if not three, were suffering from mental health problems. Thought about that? Statistically. Jesus invests. He gives authority despite a lack of qualification in the world's eyes. And I want us all to be cautious that we don't create this incredible divide between the qualified ones and the unqualified ones. The NHS already suffers enough with that. Let's not get ridiculously litigious where mental health is concerned. Because you are all leaders here in this room. You are all authority recipients and you are all authority givers. You don't need to be fixed to carry the authority that God gives. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, we see Paul acknowledging that he was accepting of his physical illness, the thorn, despite praying for it to be healed. But you know what? His authority was not diminished in any way because of his condition. Indeed, in Acts 20, he raises a man from the dead. He raises a man from the dead, and you don't get more authority-wise than that. I haven't worked that one out yet. And then there's the gift of the authority that's given through true empathy and this is something that we can carry and nurture amongst us the gift of authority that comes with the ability to truly empathize as Harper Lee writes in To Kill a Mockingbird first of all he said if you can learn a simple trick scout you'll get along a lot better with kinds of folk from all side of the tracks you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view until you climb into his skin and walk around in it Authority is carried in your empathy, your ability to understand and come alongside. The second question that we need to answer is the integrity question. If I speak about recovery, will people assume that I have recovered? And if so, am I being disingenuous? You come along to a conference like this, we're all smiling and, yeah, I'm in the queue, I've got my coffee. Apologies if you were assailed in the queue by our local citizens. <laughs> this is a mental health conference after all, but it's not a great start to the day to be sworn at. I was told I would be punched in the face later. So that got me a bit worked up before <laughs> we even started. <laughs> if you didn't have that experience, that was a good thing. So the integrity question. Now we can look shiny, but actually we can feel broken. Am I being disingenuous? Am I lacking integrity um, do I need to look more broken after all mental health is the invisible illness is it helpful to carry a placard around say hey everyone I'm sick uh, is it okay to be me I'm depressed I, I, I know I don't look depressed but I've got a big sign just to be clear uh, hi um, I'm suffering from psychosis uh, you might think I'm dangerous because I look normal I thought I should bring a sign I might be dangerous. 
Now, what should we do with the silent illness, the secret illness, when we don't really care about keeping the secret? I gave a series of talks at a day conference outside London, and um, I tried to mix my theological and psychological insights with quite a lot of humor, and I felt like I was on quite good form that day. Uh, but I maybe overdid it a little bit. I kind of, you know, I was on a bit of a roll. I was feeling quite buoyant, and it was all going quite well. And towards the end of the day, I started talking about my own mental ill health. And I could sense that there was a little bit of surprise in the room, which was encouraging. I was like, obviously, they came across okay. But the end of the conference, a, a very angry, I don't, I say an angry woman. She wasn't like an angry woman. I'm an angry woman. She was a woman who was angry. Um, she came up to me and she said, I don't know why you start talk, started talking about your own mental health. Because there's clearly nothing wrong with you. And that was really unhelpful. I don't know why you started talking about your own mental health. Because there's clearly nothing wrong with you. And I found that really unhelpful. I gotta say, I, I felt quite hurt at the time. I felt quite hurt. I thought, oh my goodness. Did I like, was I disingenuous? I like sold her a dummy and then like I came in and sort of, you know, I'm like, this is my problem. Was I like living this aspirational dream for everyone in the room that they could be sort of happy and shiny and sorted and not have any problems? And then at the end, I kind of broke the dream and destroyed her day, quite possibly. But you know, the woman taught me two really important lessons. The first one was that I don't actually need to reference my own mental health problems to help people with theirs. That's not the response that you thought I was going to give, did you? You thought I was going to give a more earnest response just then. But it's actually true. I don't need to validate what I say by saying, hey, it's okay because I, I can talk about this thing because I know what I'm talking about because I've got this own problem. I've got my own problem. You can actually minister just as you are. You don't need to do the big reveal. You don't need to to be effective. But you can do if you want to. You don't need to. And so anyone here in the room who feels like, oh, maybe I'm disqualified because I haven't got my own mental health story, I want to say to you, no. You've got your own emotional health story. You might not have a diagnosis to like hold up like a placard. But you've got your story, and your story is valuable. You don't need to do the big reveal. And equally, if you think, actually, my story is quite a private and personal story, and I, I don't want to share my story, you don't have to share your personal story to be effective in helping others with their emotional health. You know, the second thing that that woman taught me was that your integrity is something that belongs to you, not to other people. Your integrity belongs to you, not to other people. Some people think that you are being disingenuous no matter what you are doing. At the end of the day, what they think means far less than what you are trying to do. Your integrity belongs to you. You choose it. You don't need to carry a placard or a banner. You decide. You say, before God, am I living out this calling as a leader in this area with integrity? Because at the end of the day, it's only God who knows your heart and your mind. And other people might critique you and say, oh, I think you're disingenuous. So they might. They might whatever you say, 
you do a dealing with God. You keep your own accounts with God and you carry your own integrity and therefore you carry your own dignity. The third and final question I want to respond to is the vulnerability question. If I speak about healing while still suffering, will I be exposed and potentially ridiculed? Well, these two questions, in a way, uh, come together, the integrity and the vulnerability one. In 2 Corinthians 4.7, in the New Living Translation, Paul says, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. When I started out in ministry, I had no inclination whatsoever to become known for works in mental or emotional health. In fact, I tried really hard to stay away from anything vaguely pastoral when I was training for ministry. And uh, I attached myself to what are called the apologetics movement. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They don't go around apologizing for stuff all the time. They generally, they come forth and present the gospel in quite complex ways and try and impress people with all sorts of scientific, wondrous understanding. And um, I, I decided that I wanted to do my placement with a man called um, Michael Ramsden, who was, head of a, was leading a very important organization that was doing this. And we'd done a deal where I would drive him to events and basically be his gopher and chauffeur and listen to these amazing talks that he was going to offer. And I remember going to see my pastoral studies tutor who I had to organize this placement with and say, Jeff, you know, I've got a great placement sorted out and I'm going to be basically a, a chauffeur and a bag carrier, but I'm going to learn an awful lot of stuff on the way. And he said, you know, Will, I think that you've, um, you know, you've done enough of that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm going to send you to a senile dementia clinic and you're going to work there for the next eight months. Um, in uh, the Linden unit in Oxford and you're going to have a really helpful time. I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this is not what I want to do. This is not what I want to do. You know, what I realized later was why I stayed so far away from this stuff was because I knew it was in me. Now, I stayed away from it because I knew it was in me. If I could pretend that my mind was this sheet of steel, completely impenetrable, then maybe it would be a sheet of steel, completely impenetrable, and actually life would be quite straightforward and simple and easy. Spending time with those old people showed me that they still had dignity, that they were still the children of God, that he still loved them, that they weren't forgotten that they weren't of less value to him because they were unable to connect anymore with their rational and cognitive mind. God broke my heart as I saw broken bodies but sacred hearts. One hospital chaplain pointed out to me, intimacy is practically spelt into me see. If we're going to be effective in helping others, we have to be prepared for human connection, for real intimacy, and for real vulnerability. Brene Brown writes in The Gift of Imperfection, we cultivate love when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known. And when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust, respect, kindness, and affection. Love is not something we give or get. 
is something that we nurture and grow. A connection that can only be cultivated between two people when it exists within each of them. We can only love others as much as we love ourselves. So, let's try and answer our opening question. Do we have to be fixed to fix others? No. But maybe we shouldn't think so much about fixing. We should think more about valuing and loving. If you wait to be fixed before you're ready to fix others, we will all be devoid of care. We'll say, wasn't earth a terrible place where nobody cared because we all had to wait till we got to heaven before we could actually care for one another. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Let's not metaf- let's not, that was metaphorical, just in case anyone's going to break out in song for us. <clears throat> but let's pray. May your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's invite the kingdom principle of care right now in our broken bodies and in our broken minds. It's a big but. Just this closing piece for you. And if we aren't fixed and we are working to help others, there are five things that we also must accept. Firstly, there will always be a temptation that we will fall into seeking our own healing and health through the care of others rather than through our true compassion. That's always true. If you're a psychiatrist... If you're a priest, a mental health nurse, if you're a caring support worker, whatever your role, you will always be tempted to try and work out your own healing through the healing of others. Secondly, our identities are not found in our disorders, but in our daughtership and sonship of God. We need to keep a clear distinction between who we are and what we suffer when we're helping others. Thirdly, professional boundaries and guidelines are not a hindrance to your work, your ministry, or your spiritual effectiveness. They are a strength and a support for your own well-being and for the welfare of those you're seeking to help, and they should always be adhered to. Fourthly, you don't owe society anything. Shame would say that because you might have a mental health problem, you have to make yourself useful. You don't. Equally, your problems aren't God's code for your calling. And fifthly, you are not indestructible. Your mental health and your mental well-being is not something to sacrifice on the altar of your service. It's essential that you make self-care your priority if you're really going to help others over the long haul. Today, you look very serious suddenly. That wasn't like five mini rebukes for you. That was five encouragements for you. Today could be information overload. Try not to make it information overload for you. Try and make it connectedness. Try and make it a day of connectedness, a day of relationship building. A day when, oh, I picked up a few great pointers here and there. But actually, 
I gave love and I received love from my brothers and sisters in Christ. I wouldn't want anyone to feel ashamed today of who they are, of what they carry emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally. I wouldn't want anyone to feel like they went to the big mental health day and they came where they, having reaffirmed their sense of isolation and unlove in society at large. And if today is just some kind of great big generous scout jamboree for us all to enjoy, to be together, then it's a huge success. Because in a way, you're already being successful wherever you are. Today is about refueling, reconnecting, reimagining, engaging with God and each other and saying, yeah, I'm known, I'm loved. And when I'm loved and I'm known, that's when I'm powerful. Let's pray as we close this section. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your presence here today, for your love for every single person, your knowledge of everything that we're carrying and experiencing. We want to thank you for that sense of connectedness between us, that we've been uniquely called in a way for this work of connecting and loving and supporting and encouraging. And we want to pray for that healingness that absorbs our illness, our dysfunction, our discomfort. We want to pray that a model of healing that we accept isn't one of exclusion, one that loves, one that values, one that celebrates, one that comes from your own heart. We praise you for your presence and we ask, Lord, that through your spirit you might Bring peace to us right now. Show us your peace. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.